Do you ever feel like there's no great purpose to your life except maybe to pay bills? Do you think, wow, he's so fortunate. He's got this great job and he's got a wife and kids and everything looks so great. There are so many times I feel I am accomplishing absolutely nothing. There's so many times if I had wings of a dove, I would fly away, David said. And then I have to go into the secret place. I have to get with God. And he'll say to me, it doesn't matter if your synagogue is growing or not. And you know, I don't even have membership. People say, you need membership because why? Well, do you want to be a member? I'll fill something out for you. You could show it to all your friends. You are a member of the kingdom of heaven. That's your membership. I don't own you. Yeshua owns you. You were bought with a price. So many people are in that. They're like imprisoned in their house of worship. They're prisoners and they it's like a cult. If they leave, they feel like they're doing something wrong. Listen, you're owned by God. Nobody owns you. Be a slave to Messiah. Listen to Greg Hirschberg and some of the world's greatest teachers today on Solace Radio, the congregation without walls. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. Shalom and welcome to the Wild Branch Ministry and welcome to the War Scroll, the final battle between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. A final battle of seven battles to be fought according to the scroll at a future time. This scroll found among the Dead Sea Scrolls in cave number one, supposedly written, and I don't have any reason not to believe it, written by a sectarian group called the Essenes. The Essenes are a very provocative people, and there's much controversy surrounding them. But nonetheless, whoever you believe were the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are several things that are pretty consistent throughout all the sectarian scrolls that were found, which have all their prophecies and all their comments based upon the Bible. That's the main thing I think we need to focus on, is they are consistently quoting from the scriptures. That doesn't mean all their interpretations I would agree with or would you agree with, but nonetheless, they are giving their interpretation of scriptures. And one of the things that's consistent about these people is that they seem to be a very uh, prophetic people. In other words, they they seem to... to focus on prophecy, and they may be over-possessed with prophecy, which I think we are sometimes uh, today as well. But even Josephus, the famed historian himself, which lived during this time in his book called The Jewish War, he said, rarely if ever do they err in their predictions. So Josephus understands that they are very accurate prophetically, at least from Josephus' point of view. He's not the only one that says that. As I said in the first CD, what attracted me to all this is there seems to be a clear parallel in their interpretations of these future wars that are going to be fought and who it's going to be fought against, uh, a parallel with the first Exodus. And it's interesting that they basically are an exiled desert wilderness-like people. I mean, that's their claim to fame, is that they had broken off from the cities, which I believe represent the system. From Genesis chapter 4 on, the system, they had broken off from the system and were kind of uh, surviving on their own, if you will, out in the wilderness. And so they see the prophecies and the end times concerning an exiled people in the wilderness. And of course, they thought that was them, just like many other generations before us. 
have often seen that the end times are impending, they're right on top of them, and they believe they were the exiled people. So here we are, a couple thousand years later, seeing this thing coming upon us as well. The question, of course, is, is this the end of that last cycle? Are we nearing the time? Have we already fought these battles and we're nearing the last part because these battles are taking place in a 40-year period? Or could that 40-year period be simply referring to the generation likened unto the one in the wilderness and that these battles will be fought in the end of days with the final battle being fought by God himself? Now, we know that that's basically the Armageddon scenario of the book of Revelation. It's my understanding, at least at this point in my life, that what you see in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not the same thing that's going on in the book of Revelation and what we ostensibly call Armageddon. Because the one in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is fought between people. God's not intervening in that, if you will, and uh, we're, there's no battle fought. But, but the Armageddon scenario seems to be interrupted when you read it in the book of Revelation by God himself. And that is what these people saw as well in the seventh and final battle. Now, before we go on, because now we're getting to this character who is the leader of these people called Belial, or Belial, as, as, as we begin to break this down. I wanted to read one more verse from the New Testament concerning these sons of darkness. If you're familiar with my tares among the wheat teaching and the whole Esau and restrainer thing, then you'll know that it is my opinion that the seeds, the two seeds in Bashit chapter 315 are speaking of words or teaching or doctrine and how dangerous that is in the reality of our life. And it's really not a battle of flesh and blood that we're battling against. And it wasn't that way in the beginning, and I don't think it will be in that, in that way in the end. And so, once again, we see those who are the most dangerous people on the planet, I'm going to submit to you, are those with deceptive or deceiving words that try to take your focus off of the God who created you. And there's a multitude of ways in which is he, in which he accomplishes that copying God, if you will, and that God uses a multitude of ways to reach us because he loves us so. And the enemy's out to thwart that. The enemy's out to keep, if we can use the analogy of a field, the wheat from producing fruit. I believe Paul clearly refers to this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, which says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedient, i.e., the same words used for the children of darkness. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were once darkness, but now ye are light in Yahweh, walk as children of light. Once again, a clear contrast between the darkness and light. But notice that he also says we were once in darkness as well. Referring back, I believe, to Genesis chapter 5, where clearly uh, since the days of Seth and the fall and so forth, all human beings on the planet come forth from Adam and Eve, if you will. And what's the conundrum that Adam and Eve are under? They have sinned, and now Genesis chapter 5 says that man is not after the image of God, but after the image of Adam, image and likeness of Adam. So all men are in the same situation. And so there's a war or a battle going on for you and me. And as we grow up in this world, the enemy is going to be trying to teach us 
one thing and the Father going to try to teach us another. Now, that's the way we see in normal everyday life as well. Every parent experiences this when they teach their children all their life and they know they're going to go out in the world and there's going to be other words out there, whether it's their professor in college, whether it's their kindergarten teacher, whether it's their friends out on the street, uh, a myriad of possibilities of people bombarding your children with other teachings and other words which is going to lead to their behavior. That, to me, is the whole point of all of this. And Paul is simply saying that before we heard in a, in a myriad of ways, we received, we heard, we understood our Heavenly Father, if you will, we were under those same conditions as well. It's because we're all born that way. It's just that humans have the ability to be able to choose whether they want to, if you will, walk in the children of light or walk with the children of darkness. And so this final battle is about to take place here, and we're identifying the characters, and now we have gotten to the leader of this army of darkness. His name is Belial. This is in the first column of the War Scroll. Now, Belial is, as I said earlier, a contraction of two Hebrew words, Beli which is Bet Lamed Yod, and Ya'al, which is Yod Ayan Lamed. And Bali, which comes from the root Bala, which we're going to discuss here a little later in its cognates, its related family words, basically means to waste something, to consume something or something withered up. We've talked in the past about the word evil, Ra and Rasha, and words that are related to that, that have something to do with taking something that's designed for a purpose, it has a it's it's whole, it has a purpose, and you break it into pieces. You destroy or you waste the purpose of that. Well, this word is very similar. It's the word used in Scripture to describe a withering of fruit on a vine and things like that. And I'll give you some examples in a moment. But the other word that's with it is ya'al. Now, ya'al is the Hebrew word that literally means to for something to be above and beyond something. You can see that with the word Ayan Lamed there, but it's got a yod. And so someone's hand, because al is the Hebrew word for above and beyond something. For example, the airline that flies from, from America to Israel, El Al. So the al part is to go up to be above and beyond something. Now, once you put the hand on it, the yod, now you have someone doing something to cause something to be above and beyond something. It's because of this background, it's dominantly translated as prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T, profit, because that because when someone uh, works hard and they make a living, uh, what is above and beyond their living is called profit. And so that's why the Hebrew uses that same sort of concept. Now, that's going to play right into uh, our discussion here as to who might possibly be the leaders, the real people behind the system, if you will, because the contraction of these two words means to consume profit, to consume or waste even, or cause to wither away profit. Now, in the context, remember, of the first exodus, this is what the tares do to the wheat. I mean, when we look in a field, and Yeshua said, if you want to understand the world, understand a field, we look into a field and we see this is the purpose of tares in a field. This is the purpose of weeds in your garden to take uh, the nutrition and uh, the nutrients, the minerals, and the sunshine and the water away from the fruit. That's the reason why the weed's there, as we see it 
in a field to take it all away so the fruit cannot or the wheat cannot produce abundant fruit once again why would that be important because the end times is like the parable of the wheat and the tares and if the wheat doesn't produce fruit it looks pretty much like a tear and so keep the wheat from producing fruit and so consume that which it produces so now we see that the very first line of this scroll says, the first attack of the sons of light shall be launched against the lot or share, a portion, of the sons of darkness against the army of Belial, or Bli-Yaal, that which wastes or consumes profit. And they have an army that's with them. That word that used there is chil, when in the Hebrew, in that uh, scroll. And it means, chil means power or strength, or also as in soldiers. Of Belial. This same word is used of Pharaoh's army or host as it's chasing after Israel into the wilderness, if you remember. And so could it be possible that we have Belial and then we have the army of Belial in which the backing of the army of Belial is actually the great power brokers and financiers of today likened unto the taskmasters in Egypt taking the profits of those who are doing the building and producing it and using it to further their own kingdom instead. Is it possible that that scenario is being built in America today in which those of us who are working for the system, many times even against our will, that we are the ones producing and building and the taskmasters coming and taking our profits away, not to produce more wheat and so forth that we can ship over to other countries and help people, but rather to build their own kingdom, to build their own system up with the profits. And could it be that one of the methods by which they're going to do that is to take our straw away from us? In the past, our Constitution and those people we put up there in Washington have always given us the ability, according to the Constitution, to be able to make a profit, to capitalism, if you will, to be able to produce on our own without government interference and so forth. And they've always given us, once again, through the Constitution, the ability to do so. Could it be that in the latter days, we are going to be asked to produce the same thing we always have, except now they're going to take that ability away from us, that ability to make a profit and use that profit to further our businesses and so forth, and even the works of God in ministries and so forth. I don't know. I'm only proposing this. Keeping in mind that the purpose of tares, like in the taskmasters, is to keep the good fruit from producing. I want to give you some examples of the roots of this word that are behind this, and we're going to go to the actual word itself. As I said before, bala is the root of it. Bet, lamed, hey. One of the first occurrences we find is in Genesis 11, verse 7. So let's go to Brashit 11, verse 7. I'm going to propose to you, this is where the enemy, the adversary, first learns of this. He's watching, he's seeing what's going on. And in Genesis 11, verse 7, it says, Come, let us go down, and there confound their language. That's Bala. That's one of the backgrounds where we get uh, uh, Balao and the whole Babylon thing. These are all related. These words are all over Genesis chapter 11. To confound the language that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, once again, we're talking about words here. It seems to be words that is also the focus 
of Bereshit chapter 11 and what people communicating with each other in a certain way can accomplish. And so he sees the father confounding, confusing, if you will, the language of the people because they were building this tower, which is another whole story. And I'm going to submit to you he's going to use the same tactics to confuse the people of God and confuse the nations of the world as well. So one of the meanings behind this word uh, believe, which was to waste to consume in the root, is to mix or confound or confuse something. That's the concept of wasting something or consuming it. Mixing. We do that in a multitude of ways in all of our life. What happens as a result of taking something pure and mixing it? In First Chronicles, Deborah Hayamim Aleph 17.9, First Chronicles 17.9, I'm going to give you lots of examples of this. It says, also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning. There, that word waste there is our word bala, which is the root of Belial, the leader of this army of darkness. But I submit to you over and over and over, I want you to see the context of these things. The Father's constantly reminding his children who keep his covenant, who keep his ways, that he will take care of them. They will dwell in their place and need, and he will plant them there. And neither shall the children of wickedness waste them anymore. Okay, let's look at another example in Isaiah chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, last two verses, when it says, the nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but Elohim shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and they shall be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at evening, trouble, Bahal. And before the morning, he is not. This is the portion of those who spoil us, and the lot of those who rob us. You may notice the switch of nations, plural there, to he. The Bible does that all the time. That's not unusual for one man to be put for a whole nation. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Now let's turn back to the 41st Psalm. I'm going to read all of it. It's only 13 verses, but it really needs to be read all of it to get the context of this. It begins, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. Yahweh will deliver him in the time of trouble, or Ra, there. Yahweh will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth, and you will not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. Yahweh will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing that will make all his bed in his sickness. I said, Yahweh, be merciful unto me and heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die and his name perish? And if he come to see me, he speaketh vanity. His heart gathers iniquity to itself, and when he goeth abroad, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, say they, will cleave closely to him, and now that he lies down, he shall rise up no more. Let's pause right there for a moment. The phrase in English, in your King James, devar baliyao, literally, Words are a word that wastes or consumes, but the King James translators translated it as evil disease because of the context of what these people are saying is going to happen to you and that you will apparently lie down and not rise up. So they're, they're associated with a sickness or disease. 
So we have this context of in the latter days, these people who are whispering together, they devise our hurts and so forth, and they say unto us that an evil disease will cleave unto you so that you will die, if you will. You will lie down and you will not rise up from it anymore. Right now, we are going through an experience. Is it possible that there's a relationship between that and unless we get something inserted into us or we have a vaccination and so forth, a disease is going to consume you and kill you unless you take this vaccination. Could there be a connection there? Perhaps. Because it goes on to say, yes, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I'm going to submit to you, this is not just talking about a prophetic statement of Judas, but all of us. And then the rest of the psalm goes on to describe how the father is going to take care of his own. It seems to me that the context, at least of Psalm 41, is that those who keep his ways and are faithful unto him, he will take care of, he will strengthen them, and he will not deliver them unto the will of his enemies. And of course, this psalm goes on to the next psalm to talk about, as the deer panteth after the water, so my soul panteth after thee. Oh, God, it's followed with that. But here's an example where Belial is translated as an e- evil disease coming upon them. Now, as we move over to Ezekiel, especially starting in chapter 25, the next four or five chapters are all going to be prophecies against certain groups of people or certain nations. It happens to be that it's a prophecy against Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia and Tyre and Egypt and so forth. Now, those characters who sound familiar. These are all the ones that are in Psalm chapter 83 that we read earlier, and we're going to see they're all the characters that make up the sons of darkness. An example here in Ezekiel 25, 15-17 of Philistia, when it says, Thus saith Yahweh Elohim, Because the Philistines have dealt by revenge and have taken vengeance with a despiteful heart to destroy for the old hatred, what do you think that old hatred is? Rashid 3.15, all starts there. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh Elohim, Behold, I will stretch out my hand upon the Philistines, and I will cut off the Herathites, and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. We'll talk more in detail about them later. That is, of course, uh, the west coast of Israel today, Gaza being right in the heart of this conflict. But let's move on to the judgment upon Tyre. Tyre is one of the cities in what we call Lebanon today, and there's a judgment against them as well. This is going to contain our word, uh, which is the root of Belial once again. In chapter 26, verse 18, it says, Now shall the coastlands tremble in the day of your fall. Yes, the isles that are in the sea shall be troubled at your departure. The word troubled there is our root of Belial. And then you can go on to read the same prophecies made of every one of these, that you shall be brought down with them to the pit, and the lower parts of the earth, which seems to be something told of Hasatan himself in Isaiah chapter 14, which is the whole point of what happens to the other seed. What happens to the leader of, the, of that seed happens to all those who follow him. The same is true with our Messiah. The same is true with our leader, if you will. Now let's move on over to Ezra, the book of Ezra, in chapter 3, because I see the same parallel that was going on in the building of that temple is going to happen just preceding and probably into the times of the building of another temple. 
So I think it would behoove us to read uh, these 13 verses, starting in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, or Yahweh is righteous, and his brethren in the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Sha'atiel, and his brethren, and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the Torah of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings upon it unto Yahweh, and even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. So the altar is set up, and so they can do their offerings and so forth without the rest of the temple being built. As it goes on in verse 5, And afterwards they offered the continual burnt offerings, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of Yahweh that were consecrated, and of all who willingly offered a freewill offering unto Yahweh. Now this sounds like what? Sounds like Exodus chapter 25. In the first Exodus, we have some very similar conditions going on over the second one, and I submit to you that it's going to happen again. In verse 6, we read that it's the first day of the seventh month, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. And then it goes on in chapter uh, verses 8 through 11 to describe the fact that these people who are in captivity scattered out all over the place are starting to come back into the land now. But as we keep reading Ezra, we find out that the focus primarily is on Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And those happen to be the three specifically mentioned that are going to fight the sons of darkness in the first column. Now, as it goes into chapter 4, it begins by saying this, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity built the temple unto Yahweh, God of Israel, now this is the adversaries, when the adversaries heard of this, that's the word czar in Hebrew, by the way, the word czar in Hebrew. I'll say it again, czar. Then they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and said to them, these are the adversaries talking now. Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we're sacrificing unto him too, it goes on to say. And But in, in verse 3 it says, Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves will build unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. And then verse 4 is our word here, where Belial's going to show up again. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building, and then they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So as soon as the adversaries, the czars of Israel, if you will, see that they're coming back and they're getting more numerous, numerous and so forth, then they start weakening their ability to be able to produce and troubling them in the building of that, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose while building up their own purpose. Now, another cognate of this word that's the root of our Belial here is Bala, pronounced basically the same name, only there's an ayin on the end, so it's Bala. It's got a guttural there. It's bet laman ayin. And this is the Hebrew word that means to swallow something up. You can clearly see why bala, to consume something, and bala, which is to swallow up, would be related words. So this is all the background of this Belial, the leader of the sons of darkness. 
Example would be Genesis chapter 41, when the thin ears swallow up the full and fat ears. Now we're talking about the grains here that is going to be used and stored up by Joseph. Now the word there for fat and full is bari. The word for the grain that's going to be stored up to actually save Israel is bar. Bar. Because in Hebrew, the concept of bar is pureness. It's, it's, it's the word used, for example, in Zephaniah 3 verse 9 when it says that I will turn back to the peoples a bar, a pure language. And so the wheat that saves the people, that's going to save his own family, Israel, preserve them until today, is the word for pureness as well. And bar happens to be the root of this full and fat ears that's going to be devoured by, that word devoured there is bala, bet lamed ayin, swallowed up. Now remember, this is just the dream at this point, but Joseph is going to tell them that as a result of this, that they should save and prepare in the first seven years for this thing to happen in the second seven years. So the idea of not being devoured, swallowed up, wasted, consumed, by the thin ears would be to prepare for those years. So Joseph is going to interpret the dream and tell the leader of the known world, the largest nation upon the planet at that time, that they should prepare for these things that are going to happen. And so they do it by storing up bar or grain. Now that word in Greek there in your Septuagint is sitas. This is the same word that's used in the parable of the wheat and the tares when we get to the New Testament. But of course, the enemy, the tares, doesn't like that. So they're out to attack, to attack the sitas or the wheat. And that's why the word parasite, you know what parasites do. Parasite literally means alongside the wheat. So the idea of attacking the wheat would be to come alongside of the wheat, just like weeds do, to keep the wheat from producing. Now let's go through some other examples of this word in Hosea chapter 8. Verses 7 through 9, it says, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. You've probably heard that verse a lot of times. It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the nations like a vessel in which there is no pleasure. And this is talking about the scattering of Israel among the nations and which will be swallowed up by the strangers and so forth. But notice it compares it to agriculture once again. Now, another interesting use of this word is in Isaiah 19, verses 1 through, let's say, 4, when it states that the Father, our Creator, is going to do to them what they intended to do to us. That seems to be a theme all the way through Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. But it's comparing it to the first exodus, to Egypt in the first exodus. When it says, the burden of Egypt, behold, Yahweh rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt, notice there is a spirit of Egypt, that is our whole point here, shall fail in the midst of it. And I will destroy, Bala, the counsel of it, and they shall seek to the idols and to the charmers and to the mediums and to the wizards, the smart guys. 
bazaars. And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith Yahweh, the Yahweh of hosts. Now one of the Greek words that's used to express this idea of wasting or consuming or swallowing something up, some some of you will be familiar with some of the uses of that in the New Testament, for example. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's that same word that's used here. Another example is in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, and then we're going to finish with Revelation 12. says, Of the enemy, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's that same word that we're using here. It's used of the devil himself. And the last use of this word is in a very familiar chapter in Revelation, Revelation 12, in which the woman is chased into the wilderness by the serpent. says, starting in verse 15, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So the intention, just like Isaiah 19 that we read, is to devour these people, to carry them away like a flood. But the Father's going to turn it around on them, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up, there's our word, the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, I think it would behoove us to give some precise examples of this word Belial. We're spending quite a bit of time on Belial because he's the leader, and as the leader goes, so shall the followers. First occurrence, Deuteronomy 13, verse 13, when it says, certain men Belial, worthless fellows, which is translated in many places, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. First occurrence, once again, is that there's something in the midst of you, just like tares among the wheat. And they've come out of the midst of you and said to you, let us serve other gods. Now, it just so happens that the Greek word used there is paranamas. Paranamas. That is a word that means contrary to the Torah. That's what it means. As opposed to anamias, which means without the Torah, this word paranamas means contrary to the Torah. That will be the identification of these people who are called Belial and the followers thereof. Notice the association of these words in 1 Samuel 2 verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. They knew not Yahweh. So there's a direct relationship between not knowing Yahweh and doing things contrary to the Torah. Remember Matthew chapter 7, Depart from me, ye workers of Anamias, because I never knew you. Another example is 2 Samuel 23, 6. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. Now notice the direct association with thorns and worthless fellows, Belial, and contrary or no Torah. Obviously, I'm referring back to past series in which we deal with the parables and the relationship with the uh, the beast in Revelation chapter 13 and so on and so forth, being related to the paradigm or models of Esau in the very beginning. So even when we take this word, Belial, and we take the Greek word used there for thorns, we take it into the New Testament, and in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 8, you're familiar with this verse, it says, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. That is the destiny, if you will, of the sons of darkness that we have just read in the Tanakh. 
in Matthew 13, verse 7, it also uses the same thing in the parable of the sower that you're well aware of. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And once again, this in Hebrew, as we take this word back, is Belial. Belial. One, the leader of the armies of darkness in the war scroll. Now, perhaps the most obvious one in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, in which we read, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Messiah with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. The idea is the separation of the wheat from the tares. And the the way it happens in a field is that the wheat starts to produce fruit. And when that happens, there is a distinction or a separation between the wheat and the tares. In other words, you can tell and distinguish the difference between the two. So he's saying, come out from among them. Be ye separate. Not necessarily in location so much as it is in the things you do, the things you say, the feast you keep, the days you rest, so on and so forth. In other words, the difference between those who keep the covenants and those who do not keep the covenants. Now, other places in the war scroll, since we're not going to quote every verse in the scroll, Belial is also equivalent to wickedness. We went through that. Darkness. We just went through that. Those outside the covenant. The seven vainglorious nations, which we will cover later. Reprehensible rule and lawlessness. That are all, that's all associated with Belial in the war scroll. Now, as we go on in the first line of the War Scroll, we have the first the attack of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. We've defined Belial and his army. We've defined, and now it's going to get a little more specific as it begins to name those characters in these 83rd Psalm. They're out to take down Israel. It says against the troop of Edom. Edom, with its vowel structure, which is pronounced that way, means something earthy or ruddy or red or something like that. Uh, earthy or ruddy. And it comes, of course, from Adam, which in Hebrew means a man. Ha-Adam, of course, is the man, but Adam is a man. Now, remember in our Esau series where we took the uh, beast as a number of a man and his number is and blah, blah, blah. And so we tr- we trace it back to Esau, Esau, Cain, and Ishmael being the model or the paradigm of this beast. Beginning with Cain, Eve saying, I have gotten a man from Yahweh. Then going to Ishmael, he was a wild man. And then going to Esau, a man of the field. And we know that Esau is Edom. We're told that a half a dozen times. Focusing, I believe, on the fact that just because Esau leaves the scene does not mean that we don't continue on with the spirit of Esau, which is going to be this comes from the spirit of Ishmael, which comes from the spirit of Cain. Not something confined to a physical seed. And so hence we see the constant contrast of two men in scripture, a righteous man and an unrighteous man. Edom, of course, is going to be the consistent and constant enemy against Israel. He's going to show up in the first exodus. He's going to show up in, when they're in captivity, wherever they're in captivity, Edom's going to show up. I submit that Edom is still there today. Now, Physically, Edom, of course, is part of Jordan today. As a matter of fact, the first three listed in this group of the army of Belial is Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are all part 
of Jordan today, what we understand as Jordan. It's not a coincidence, of course, that those who call themselves, quote-unquote, Palestinians today, uh, decades ago, all came forth out of that in order to inhabit the land of Israel. They came out of the east or western part of Jordan, which is today Moab, Edom, and Ammon. Now, the nature of Edom, as is presented in his name, what his name means, is going to be all throughout, not just Tanakh, Tanakh, but all throughout the New Testament as well, one of the most prominent places we've discussed before is is the man of Colossians chapter 2 who judges you in your Sabbaths and your new moons and your festivals and so forth. One of the first things we see Edom doing back in the Tanakh is when the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness. Here we are in the first Exodus again. The parallels are uncanny here. And they would not allow them or let them pass through the land. Do you remember that? Another example, if you will, of trying to keep God's plan from going forward, which is seen in the field of wheat not producing fruit. The same thing as the Pharaoh not letting God's people go to the land. Obviously, you remember the most famous story of of Esau, who is Edom, and that he considered, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 30, he considered his immediate needs more important than his birthright. We've talked in past series before how the point of Esau in wanting to kill his brother is to gain back the birthright. Not so much the birthright, but all the things that go with the birthright. It's the stuff, if you will. Edom is also the subject of Obadiah. If you read the entire book of Obadiah, which doesn't take you very long, specifically in Obadiah 8, when it says, Shall I not in that day, saith Yahweh, even destroy the wise men out of Eden and understanding out of the mount of Esau? You may remember the words of Malachi. As Malachi begins, chapter 1, when it says, The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet you say, Wherein have you loved us? Now this is going to sound familiar because later on in Malachi chapter 3, the same kind of thing is going to happen. When did we do these things? And so he refers them back to Esau. He takes them back to Genesis, back to the things that occurred in the beginning for them to understand why he loves us in the end. You have to understand why he loves them in the beginning. And so Yahweh says, uh, was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I loved Israel? What was Israel? What was Yaakov's? Uh, relation here. He considered it more important. His birthright was more important than his immediate needs. And then in verse 3 says, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Remember, these things are going to be taking place in the wilderness in the war scroll. Whereas Edom said, We were impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Remember, we read a little bit of that, about that back in Ezra. But Yahweh says, You shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh hath indignation forever. Now, once again, as I have said in the past, we read something like this, and from a human point of view, we conclude, well, look up there, Edom is doomed forever. And what he's trying to say is, as long as Edom remains Edom, amen, doing what he wants to do, trying to keep the weak. Yes, they are doomed forever. But if Edom... I'm talking about in the physical now, turns their hearts toward the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In God's eyes, they're not Edom anymore. They're not Arab anymore. They're not Hittites anymore, or Moabites, or Ammonites, which we're going to get to. But they're fellow citizens with the saints of God. 
and they are of the commonwealth of Israel. That's the whole point. Humans have the ability to choose, and humans can choose to follow and be of the sons of light rather than the sons of darkness. Now, the second group of people that is named is Moab. Moab. Now, Moab happens to be from or out of a father. From or out of a father. And it just so happens that Moab and this character that follows, Ammon, happen to be the product, the two sons of a relationship between Lot and his own daughter. And so one of the sons ends up being, as a result of this, someone from a father. He's from a father, but his mother was his father's daughter. Now, Moab's going to play a really significant role in the heart of the book of Numbers, particularly Numbers chapter 24 and 25, which is the whole Barak uh, Balaam scene, if you remember, which, of course, is in the middle of the Exodus, once again, in the book of Numbers. That's right in the midst of the context of the Moabites mixing with the children of Israel that we read of the second appearance of the Katim, the first one being in Genesis chapter 10. We're going to talk about more of this in detail later, but in Numbers chapter 24, verse 23, it says, And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? And the ship shall come from the coast of Katim, and shall afflict Ashur, and shall afflict Eber, and also shall perish forever. I believe that's a direct reference to after Alexander the Great has passed away, and he's divided up his kingdom into his four generals. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Katim. So gaining some more insight into Moab, in Exodus 15, 15, they're associated with the dukes of Edom. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab, trembling shall take hold upon them, and all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. So it's happened. Remember, the father teaches cyclically. So these things, I'm trying to say, have already happened before, but they're going to happen again in the final days. And as we continued on in Numbers chapter 25, after you heard about the Katim, it says in verse 1 through 3, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So this same sort of pattern is going to happen. Notice the sins of the fathers are passed down to the children. Directly associated with the, with the dukes of Edom. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab, trembling shall take hold upon them, and all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Seen forward, casting forward to this prophecy being ultimately fulfilled in this final battle. Now there's one more thing I want to add before moving on to Ammon here with respect to Moab. And that is when we, we have these generations cursed because of the Moabites not allowing to enter the camp because they didn't take care of them and so forth and they mixed with Israel. But, and sometimes I love that word, there's going to be an account of one Moabitess who, for all intents and purposes, have only seen in the physical, she could never be part of the kingdom because she's a Moabitess. But the point of the story, as you well know, is when Naomi decides to go back to, to the land, back to Israel, one Moabitess decides to stay in the land of Moab, but the other one is going to say, entreat me not to leave you or to turn away from following after you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people should be my people, and your God should be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried, and so on and so forth. And she ends up being included in the genealogy of Yeshua. Why? Because as an act of her own will, in spite of the family she was born into, it didn't make a difference. I'm only submitting it's never made a difference. And that's why we are commissioned to go out into all the whosoevers of the world because the Father knows, but we don't know. That's the problem. 
His people are not lost in God's eyes. They're only lost in our eyes. Lost means you don't know where they're at. And continuously, we don't know where they're at. For someone to say that there's no such thing as the lost tribes of Israel is silly. Not only cannot that not be backed up by Scripture, but that's not the way historically things have been. We're discovering who they are. Hundreds every day of the week, we people discover all over this planet who they were and didn't know that before. All right, let's stop preaching and get back to teaching here. There's another group of people that generally is seen in the context with Moab. Not always, but but most of the time. And that's the sons of Ammon, or Ammon. Now, Ammon is, you can probably hear the root of that, is from Am, which is a group of people. A group of people. Once again, these are one of the enemies of the Israelites uh, that fight in the wilderness in the first exodus, and here they are again in the end times in these final battles. Now remember that Ammon and Moab are the result of uh, relationships between Lot and his daughter. Keep that in mind. Ammon's also associated with Amalek many times. Now, Amalek is the grandson of Esau, the grandson of Esau. And they are part of these sons of darkness in this group of people that seem to be in column one at this time, separate from the Katim, which we're going to get to a little later. In Shoftim, or Judges 3, verse 13, it says, And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and they went and smote Israel and possessed the city of the palm tree. Another, perhaps even more important occurrence of Ammon is in 1 Kings 11, verse 7. I'm going to read a few of these verses so we get the context where it says, Then did Solomon build a high place. Now that word in Hebrew is Bama. For Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon, and likewise did he for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And so when this thing starts out, Solomon is responsible for it. God's own people. He builds a high place, Obama, once again, for these people. And then later on, these same people that he built this for and that he served are going to be used against him. That's the way the Father always works. Whatever you choose to worship, whatever you choose to do, it's going to be your enemy later. I guarantee it. Because then it goes on in verse 9 and says, And Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from Yahweh Elohim of Israel, who had appeared unto him twice confirming it, and he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which Yahweh commanded. How did it start? By having anything to do with these people in the first place. Wherefore, verse 11, Yahweh said unto Solomon, for as much as you have done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and will give it unto your servant. This is when the two kingdoms divide is because of this, if you will, high place, or this Bama, that he makes unto the Moabites and the Ammonites and their kings and their ways, and and eventually shifting everybody to worship other gods, other than the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And so the fathers eventually in these last days going to use this against them as they lose, if you will, three of these battles, if you remember, in this war scroll. And remember, in the midst of this, keep in mind that they turned away from the covenant because the bottom line in the end of days, according to the Essenes, if the Essenes are the writers, it's the difference between the sons of light and the sons of darkness is those who keep the Torah and those who do not. And we're getting to that as we get into the New Testament here. Those who keep his covenants and those who do not. Let's go to Zephaniah, or Zephaniah 2, verses 8 and 9. We're continuing on with Moab and Ammon here. 
I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and of salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. In Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember the story, there was a distinction made between Lot and the peoples of the cities. Was Lot a perfect human being? No. But he was chosen by the Father, and as these events began to take place in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a distinction made between Lot and his family. They were separated. And when they were separated, you remember the eventual results were that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah went up in a puff of smoke, and who remained upon the earth? The children of the light represented by Lot, except for a wife who turned back, if you remember, kind of like Ruth's sister turning back as well. I submit to you that the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing is not a picture of a rapture, but it's a picture of the separating of the wheat and the tares, and the tares removed and the wheat remaining once again. This is going to be the same thing that's going to happen in this story in the War Scroll. Now, another group of people that are mentioned sometimes in context with Moab and Ammon are some people, some children of the East, or some sons of the East. This is not mentioned in the War Scroll in particular, but they seem to be associated with them. So let's read a couple of passages from Yeshahu or Isaiah 11, 12-15. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcast of Israel, and gather together dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Now that has yet to happen in the history. This has not happened yet. We don't have a time when these two aren't, if you will, battling with one another. It says, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And Yahweh shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind he shall shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and shall make men go over dry shod. Virtually every prophecy, quote-unquote, expert I've ever read, including uh, John Walbert and all the greats, Hal Lindsey and, and so forth, all agree that these events have not happened yet. There has not been the, the regathering of, of Israel. None of this has happened yet. This is a future event. Now, I wanted to make a comment about the East, because in Hebrew, the word primarily translated as East, there are some other examples, but the one dominantly translated East is Kadem. And Kadem in Hebrew is not is the Hebrew word for the direction East, but it's not at all limited to the east. As a matter of fact, I'm going to submit to you many times it's not even specifically talking about the direction of east. It's talking about a word that's used in Hebrew to describe where the ways of God come from, from the ways of our Elohim, our Yahweh, come from. They planted a garden east and e- eastward in Eden. And I've gone to the details of this word many times in our words mean theory. Thing series, But this word is not confined to a direction. So many times when the Bible talks about something occurring in the east, many times it's talking about something east of Jerusalem. Because all these characters that we've named so far, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Assyria, all these which we're getting to, are all east of Jerusalem. Because east primarily is a word used to describe the direction in which God's ways come from. But sometimes it's talking about things that are east of Jerusalem. 
For instance, the sun rises also east of Jerusalem. And many times these people who lived east of Jerusalem would face toward the rising sun, which is not toward Jerusalem. That's away from Jerusalem. So we see these children of the east also in Judges chapter 6, verse 3, when it says, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. Now, those listed among the sons of darkness after the sons of Ammon and Moab and Edom are Philistia. Philistia. Now, Philistia is from the root palash in Hebrew. Palash. Pe, Labed, Shin. We get the words not only Philistia, but Philistines and Palestine. Those ought to be familiar words. It's from that root palash, which literally means to dive into the dust. Now, literally, this word palash means dive into the dust. It's translated and understood as an invader, someone who invades something, someone who invades a land and so forth. And it's literally describing as not just casually sauntering through the dust, but diving into the dust. This happens to be someone who's the son of Cush, Nimrod, and Mitzrayim, or Egypt. Now, there's much scholarly debate on their origin. Uh, but according, for example, to Encyclopedia Judaica, according to Wikipedia, according to a good friend Steve Collins, uh, co- according to Unger's Bible Dictionaries and a myriad of others, they're not all in agreement, but some of the most well-known sources say that these were sea peoples. They're associated with peoples of the sea from Koftor, uh, otherwise known as Crete. And so we probably get the Cretans that are talked about in the book of Acts from this as well. And apparently these people, uh, in now the encyclopedia is going to say settled in the southwest coast of western Israel, which, which many times have been, has been called Palestine, but it's never been Palestine. It's Israel. And these people invaded that southwest coast. That's because that's the nature of the meaning of this word palash, which is behind Philistines and Palestinians as well. And some associate them also with some of the Indo-European languages as well. In other words, they seem to come from the west and settle into the southwest coast of Israel. Now, these people also happen to be part of the Exodus we're familiar with in the book of Exodus. For example, in Exodus 13, 17, it says, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of Philistines, although that was the nearest way, for God said, lest the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt, as if they turn around and go back to where they came from. That's not the kind of repentance that the Father wants. But instead, it goes on to say, he led them in the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. This is going to paint the picture in Exodus, of what's going to be taking place in the latter days according to Scripture and according to the War Scroll. Now, let me give you an example of how this word is used literally, based upon its literal meaning. In Ezekiel 27, verse 30, it says, And shall cause their voice to be heard against you, and shall cry bitterly, and shall cast up dust upon their heads. They shall wallow themselves in the ashes. So in the midst of this lamentation against Tyre, because Tyre is going to be up the northern coast, up north into what we call Lebanon today, we have the root meaning display. They show wall of themselves in the ashes. A couple of other examples of this. Mizmor, Psalm 108, verse 9. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. Notice all three of those together 
in that verse once again. In Isaiah 9 verse 12, it says, The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this is his anger, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out even more still. And continuing on in Isaiah 14:29, Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote you is broken, for out of the serpent's root shall come forth a serpent, cockatrice in the English there, and his fruit shall be a fiery fly, flying serpent. Now I have covered this before in one of our past series about the concept of like kind. And we've got a serpent's root shall come forth a serpent and what will his fruit be? A fiery flying serpent. And it's directly connected to Palestina, okay, or Palash, invaders and so forth. So we, the children of light, if you will, we have a root and we produce fruit from that root. And so the enemy is exactly the same way. It's just my insistence is, is that this root is not physical. It's words or teaching or doctrine that is dangerous. People are deceived and turned a different direction because of words that come out of our mouth. Now we're going to spend the last part of the second CD and probably a little bit into the next one talking about this group of people called Katim. As I read once again in the scroll that the sons of darkness will be an army of Belial, the troops of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, the sons of Ammon, Philistia, or Philistia, and against the troops of Katim of Ashur, being helped by those who violate the covenant. So we got two more groups of people to talk about, the Katim of Ashur, which are also going to be the same as the Katim in Egypt when we get to the fourth line, and they're helped by those who violate the covenant. We'll talk about that in the next CD. Now to summarize, at this point, we seem to have those who are of the east, which is the army of Belial, the sons of darkness containing the troops of Edom and Moab and, and the sons of Ammon and so forth. Now we have uh, Philistia and against the troops of the Katim of Asher. Let's talk about Katim first, that word. This word Katim is from the root Katat. It is a Kaf, a Tav, and another Tav. Kaf, Tav, Tav. Katim, of course, is the plural. And literally this word means to crush or to beat. And it's used many times to to express the idea of crushing the olives for the oil in the menorah, for example. Something has to be crushed. Olives have to be crushed to produce light. And so we have something that crushes or beats something. Now later on we will read in this first column that they are the sons of Japheth and they will have dominion over the earth. Now of the three sons of Noah, of course, there was the sons of Shem and the sons of Ham and the sons of Japheth. Japheth is the one whose children and descendants primarily went up to the north and to the west. The north and into what we demonstrably call the west today. Now where do we get that? Genesis chapter 10, starting with verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, and Javan, which is Greece, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, so this we're now getting into the grandsons of Japheth, were Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Targamah. And the sons of Javan, Greece, if you will, modern day Greece today, is Elisha, and Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. 
Katim is one of the sons of Javan or Greece. And that's why there is a big debate today over, especially those who are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, as to whether the Katim are the Romans or the Greeks. I'm going to give you evidence for the Romans and I'm going to give you evidence for the Greeks. So what do you think my opinion is? Both. I submit to you that there are two legs of Rome the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. And I believe we've discussed a lot of the Eastern Empire, the Eastern leg of the Romans, because the rabbis called the Romans the the Edomians or the Edomites. They believed that they were Edom, Edomites. Now, I believe the Eastern leg of Rome was the Edomians, and the Western leg is going to comprise what we today call the Western nations, if you will. And, of course, guess who that would include? That would include us. Much of our architecture and most of the structure of our government and so forth comes from both Greece and Rome. And so my contention that the sons of the east, the sons of darkness, are comprised of the eastern leg of the Roman Empire, which I believe we just named, and who will be traditionally, historically, the enemies of many people in the West. But in the end times, they will come together, if you will, the woman riding the beast, in order to stand against a common enemy Israel, i.e. you and me. So it's not just Islam, or it's not just the Holy Roman Empire and all that goes with that, but it's both. Now in the Pashers, remember that word means interpretations, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly the Pasher of uh, Habakkuk and Nahum, the Katim are represented as instruments appointed by God to punish the ungodly priest of Jerusalem, actually. We've talked many times about how when God's people, when we, let's just don't push it off on somebody else, when we turn away from the commandments of God, it is our Father that exacts punishment upon us and sends our own enemies against us. This is how the Father works in Scripture from beginning to end. That's why many times the word east, which I said earlier, is associated with the ways of God. But when I say the ways of God, I mean His Torah, His commandments. And its commandments or the ways of God say, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. These things will come upon you. And they actually come from God himself. Allow me, if you will, to quote from Gaze of Verme, someone I much respect that I mentioned earlier. And we'll repeat this first line. In the Pashers, now that is interpretations of the book of Habakkuk and Nahum, the Katim are represented as instruments appointed by God to punish the ungodly priests of Jerusalem I just read to you. Then he goes on to say, the war rule, which was another one of the scrolls found, however, testifies to a changed attitude towards them on the part of the sect by making the Katim appear as the chief allies of Belial or Satan and the final foe to be subjugated by the host of the sons of light. The Katim battle against the kings of the north until the final battle when they join with those listed in column one to defeat the sons of light. And the kings in the north, we're going to talk about a little bit later. But, once again, there are those who believe they represent Greece and those who believe they represent the Romans. One of the reasons why they believe it represents the Romans is because a lot of the armor and so forth and a lot of the way the battles are designed in the middle of the war scroll are very Roman-like, Roman-like <laughs> descriptions, something that was very familiar to the Romans. And so a lot of people believe that the Katim were the Romans. However, in the book of 1 Maccabees, it refers to Macedonia and Alexander the Great marching from the land of the Katim. Now, this is what I believe. I believe that this Katim that we're about to talk about, that's all over the war scroll and other scrolls as well, as being part of the bad guys in the end of times, 
is those representing the West. And that would include Rome and Greece. And that Alexander the Great, if you remember, conquered uh, the known world at that time. Now, this took place before everybody agrees that the Essenes wrote these scrolls. So, they're using the events that happened at the time of Alexander the Great to describe future events. And, of course, that's also the way the scriptures teach things as well, cyclically. Teaching in a Peshat, something that was happening immediately at that time, and also prophesying something future that's going to happen that will repeat itself. And the same with this. And so in Maccabees, it refers to that land which Alexander the Great conquered, which is just north and east of Greece. And if you remember, he died and sent his generals out, and they they were taking control of certain regions that Alexander the Great had previously conquered. Now, two of those dominant regions were Assyria, what we call Assyria today, that was primarily under the king Seleucid. And then we had Ptolemy, one of his other kings, that was primarily in charge of Egypt. And believe it or not, I know you can believe this, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids also fought against each other to keep control of these certain kingdoms that Alexander the Great had given them. So, once again, they fight against each other, and that's what we're seeing in the war scroll, until it comes time to face one enemy, and then they all join together. Now, in the first part of column one, we have the Katim of Ashur. That would be the kingdom of Seleucid. And let's go on and give some examples of how this word is used throughout Scripture as well. In Shemot chapter 27, verse 20, It says, and you shall command the children of Israel that they bring the pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. Now, what's significant to me of this use of this word is the idea of crushing olives in order to produce oil. Now, oil is what comes from lamps to make light. Notice the contrast of all this war scroll is the sons of light versus the sons of darkness. I submit to you that the Father knows us well, and he knows that when we're all arguing and fighting against each other about this, that, or the other, that we're scattered and we're not effective and we're not a light in the world. He already knows in order for us to be effective lights, we need persecution, we need to be crushed. We, the olives of the natural olive tree, or the olives that are grafted in from the Wild olive tree need to be crushed in order to produce light. And so the enemies of the sons of darkness happen to be the sons of light. Another example is Zechariah 11.6. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith Yahweh, but lo, I will deliver men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and unto the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. That word smite there is our word Katat, or the root of Katim. In Numbers chapter 24, 24, we read this earlier, and the ship shall come from the coast of Katim, and shall afflict Asher, and shall affect Eber, and he shall also perish forever. Once again, this would be the conquering, I believe, in the past, we're going to see a future fulfillment of this, the conquering of that area of the world we now call Assyria and, and Babylon, and so forth, down into Iraq, as the Katim, as they uh, took over and conquered that area, Asher, by Alexander the Great. Katim is also associated with West, the ships and the coastlands. I believe a confederation of nations from the West, including America, I hate to say, they will eventually jump on the back of those of the East and join together to fight their common enemy, Israel. 
Another example of the Yiskatim, now remember, many times it's spelled in the English C-H-I-T-T-I-M, but it's the same word. It's just they've transliterated the cough as a chet. Isaiah 23, 1 and 12. The burden of Tyre, how, ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste so that there is no house, no entering in from the land of Katim, it is revealed to them. And he said in verse 12, You shall no more rejoice, O you oppressed virgin, daughter of Zidon, not Zion, Zidon. Arise, pass over to Katim, there also shall have no rest. Another example of the sea coast and the isles and so forth is in Ezekiel 27.6. Of the oaks of Bashan have they made your oars. The company of the Asherites have made the benches of ivory brought out of the isles of Katim. That's in Ezekiel 27, verse 6. Now, one more quote, and we'll close this one, and we'll continue with the Katim next time, is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. Daniel chapter 11 is a detailed account of of a prediction, a prophecy, which we would later know as Alexander the Great, and having these four kingdoms set up by him with four different rulers, and you basically set up the kingdoms to the north and the kingdoms to the south. Now, later on in the book of Daniel, this is going to be a king of the north and the king of the south and so forth. And they're fighting against one another. Now, remember, this prophecy in our war scroll is written after these things occurred. So I believe what they're doing is taking into account these events that have already ta- taken place, knowing that they will happen cyclically. They will happen again. We have this traditional battle against the kings of the south, mostly the Ptolemaic kingdom, and Seleucid kingdom to the north. Now, there's going to be constant battles between these two. Antiochus the fourth, we, we call him Antiochus Epiphanes. You're familiar with that, which is not his original name. Uh, his original name was uh, like Mithridates or something like that. Mithraism. You're familiar with that. His name changed when he took over the kingdom. He's one, of course, that's going to, you know, the, 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 the desecrating the altar and the whole Hanukkah thing. So we can get in context of which one we're talking about. And so. Either way, they come forth to attack each other. And so in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, it says, For the ships of Katim shall come against him. I believe that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake your Holy Covenant. Now Josephus, who we quoted earlier, states that the Katim, as seen from the Hebraic point of view, from the Hebrews' point of view, the Katim represent all people who come from the islands of the West. So islanders are Katim to them. And they are associated with Assyria because they took over that area. And according to the book of Jubilees, uh, chapter 24, verses 28 and 29, the Katim is Greece and part of the troops used by Esau to fight Jacob. And there are also some today that say actually the island of Cyprus comes from this word Katim. Cyprus actually comes from Katim. So as we close the second part, the point what I, I want to make is that historically these people, west and east, if you will, have fought against one another, but they're going to join together in the end times to defeat Israel. Next time we're going to finish with the Katim and then we're going to talk about the violators of the covenant and who the identification of the sons of light are according to the first column. So in the meantime, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. See you next time. Shalom. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world.
Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time.